So we're talking about rest tonight. Hebrews chapter 4 deals with the issue of rest. Now you would think the issue of rest wouldn't be very controversial, but I want to tell you about a time that I got in a fight with some people about this. Actually, blows weren't thrown, but um, it was still a pretty hostile experience anyway. There is a, a group, I would call it a cultic group here in Nashville. They don't seem to have as much power and strength as they used to. They're called the Nashville Church. Um, maybe some of you have run into them. If you do, you should avoid them. I don't mind saying that because it really is a cultic group. Been banned on most college campuses and, and whatnot. But um, there was a girl back in our REF group about eight or ten years ago who had started to get mixed up with this group. And I was trying to talk to her about that and found out that her discipler, one of the things that they do is they assign a discipler to you who then their spiritual well-being is dependent upon whether or not you stay in the group. They lose their salvation if you don't. So they're pretty motivated to stay on top of you. Uh, anyway, so she had connected with this discipler girl who was the head discipler for the church. And I found out that they were meeting, and I asked if I could come join the meeting. It was out at Centennial Park. They used to often hang out at Centennial Park and have little picnics and kind of draw people in that way. And we went and we talked, and um, they're really big on Acts 2.38, taken out of context. Acts 2.38 says that you must repent and be baptized and then be saved. And they're really big on it has to be exactly that order. Repentance is something you do where you quit sinning, and then you get baptized, and you better make sure it's the right way, understanding the right thing, or it won't count, which means it has to be done in their church in their way. And then you can get the Holy Spirit and be saved, Right? So we were talking about this, and I said, you know, you're harping so much on Acts 2.38, and Peter's the guy that said that, the Apostle Peter. He was Jewish. You know that, right? And she said, yes. I said, do you mind if we look at a passage in the Old Testament that might give some context for what Peter possibly could have meant by repent? Because I think that your idea of repenting, of you just sort of do your best to quit sinning so that you can make yourself presentable to God, I think that that's a little askew from what the Bible means when it says repent. How about we look at a passage in the Old Testament? And she said, okay. And I said, look at Acts, or sorry, uh, Isaiah 30, 15, chapter 30, verse 15, which we'll look at actually as we get into this message tonight. It says, um, this is what the sovereign one of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. And I said to her, now the way that Hebrew poetry works, the parallelism means that repentance and rest are really the same thing. Repentance is rest, according to the Bible and according to the Jewish understanding. And I think that's obviously what Peter meant when he said to repent. And she said, being a Christian is absolutely not about resting. And I said to her, well, then I suppose you have a problem with Jesus. Because there is that troubling place where he said, come unto me, all you who are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest, right? And at this point, my student said, wait. And she points at the girl. She says, you don't believe that being a Christian is about resting? And the girl said, absolutely not. And she said, okay, then I'm out of here. You wouldn't think resting would be a very controversial issue. Now, the reason this group is actually so persuasive is because, honestly, even though that's a pretty extreme example, most Christians I know might say that they believe in rest and believe that what it means to be a Christian is to be one who is resting in Jesus alone. In reality, they really don't understand rest. 
And they really, there's very little evidence of rest in their lives. Their hearts and their minds are in constant turmoil. They're all the time wondering if they've done enough for God, if they really are living the kind of life they should be living. They worry all the time, and they're convinced that God is constantly disappointed with them. And so a group like this actually is pretty persuasive because they're consistent with the bad theology that most people raised in evangelical churches already have, which is why we need to look at Hebrews chapter 4, one of the most important passages in the Bible on this idea of rest. So if you will, turn to your Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, we'll start at verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, meaning the people in the Old Testament times. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed Enter that rest, just as God had said, and then quoting from the Old Testament, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works, God's works, have been finished from the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. So so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is like God is saying that he is rested, right? Therefore, verse 6, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them, meaning those who lived in the days of Moses, did not go in to the promised land, it means, because of their disobedience, God again, after the whole generation that was with Moses, Set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, and this is a quote now from the Psalms, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, trust me, I'm going to explain all this because it's a little tricky to follow the train of thought here, I understand, but stick with me. He's saying basically, there's this talk about rest, and the promised land is even at times called the land of rest. But some of the people in Moses' day did not get to enter into that land of rest. Then they did finally enter the promised land. But then later in the Psalms, God still talks about a rest that's in the future. So whatever the promised land was, it did not exhaust all that God had promised when he promised his people rest. That's the the logic of what's going on here. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua in bringing them into the promised land, had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example. That means the people of Moses' day, their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would help us even now. We need to hear from you. We need you to speak to our very hearts. We need your word to go deep. And we pray that you'd send your spirit to do that now, tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The the heart of what we're talking about tonight is we must enter the rest that remains for the people of God. But that's so difficult to do. We need help. And God gives us help. And we're going to talk about that help here tonight as well. So what is this rest that still remains? Now, I kind of tried to to get at this when I was talking. You understand, God promised rest to his people. They had been in bondage and slavery for 400 years to Egypt. And then God brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery. This is what's called the Exodus. And it's the great rescue that dominates the Old Testament. God rescued his people when they were without hope. And he rescued them from slavery and toil without end. And he brought them to a land that he called the land of rest. Yet, they murmured and they grumbled and they complained and they disobeyed God. And finally, he said to them, this generation will not enter into the promised land. They will not enter the promised land. Moses was allowed to go up on this mountain, Mount Pisgah. And he was allowed to look into the promised land, but the people did not get to go in there. It fell to the next generation, under the leadership of Joshua, to enter into the promised land. And yet, that story is really not as glorious as it should have been, because still unbelief is going on constantly, uh, sort of a constant traveling companion for God's people. But, here's what what the writer of Hebrews is saying, even even with all that sort of messiness, even if they had believed perfectly and entered into the promised land, as God had promised, under Moses, that still would not have exhausted what God meant when he promised them rest. God had always intended a bigger, more complete rest than merely the promised land. And the first point of what Hebrews is saying here is that God's ultimate plan for his people is not merely that they inhabit a particular piece of land in the Middle East. Now, a lot of you probably come from church backgrounds where it's all about Israel becoming a nation and being in that land again. And if you've read those silly Left Behind books, maybe you think that God's whole point and his whole grand scheme is to get the Jews back in this particular piece of land and then all his promises will come true. And I'm saying no. And because the book of Hebrews says no. The book of Hebrews says that the promised land was not the ultimate end for God's people. It was a foretaste. It was a signpost pointing to an even greater rest 
that was to come through Jesus. Now, the book of Hebrews is going to make this point over and over again. In the next few chapters, we're going to get into the idea of the Old Testament sacrifices and the animal sacrifices. And Hebrews is going to say, look, the animal sacrifices were never God's final solution for the sin problem either. And how do we know that? Because you had to repeat them over and over and over and over and over again. And if God had said that animal sacrifices could really deal with sin, you wouldn't have had to repeat them over and over and over and over again. So built into the sacrifices is the point that they're not the point. They're pointing to something else. And the same thing is true of the rest. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, if you actually read the Bible in what we now call redemptive historical way, in other words, you trace a theme as God progressively reveals it, you find out something very interesting. Here's, here's the way to think of the Bible. The Old Testament, particularly the, the oldest parts of the Old Testament, are like a flower that's still in the bulb. But it's beginning to blossom, and finally in the New Testament, you get the full flowering. There's nothing in the flower that wasn't there in the bulb. Or you could think of it this way. In the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed, and in the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. They're together. God has been speaking a progressive, unified message. And we know that because way back in chapter 1 of Hebrews, it said this. At various times, through various ways, God has spoken to us by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. The book of Hebrews starts out with this idea that God has been speaking and has been progressively revealing his plan and his purpose. And so it's very significant that hundreds of years after God's people had entered into the promised land, David, speaking, God speaking through David, writes in the Psalms about another day, another day of rest. And so what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to help these Jewish Christians understand, the promised land was never the ultimate goal. It's not the real rest just because you're living there, or if you can get rid of these Romans who are oppressing you and you can get your land back, it's still not good enough. You were made for something more than just inhabiting a particular piece of real estate in the Middle East. God's purpose is so much bigger than that, and it always has been. So the, the, the rest is not a physical, earthly rest. It was pointing, even that physical land called the land of rest, was pointing to something. What was it pointing to? It was pointing to a true Sabbath, namely Jesus. The astonishing thing that the writer of Hebrews is saying is that everything that God meant when he's talking about Sabbath rest is contained and is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to go much more into detail about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath means What does it mean to rest? What does it mean to to cease? What does it mean to feast? All these different ways of keeping Sabbath. We're going to devote a whole week to that because I don't want to just brush over it tonight. But the point of Hebrews 4 is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Sabbath was to be. So just whet your appetite a little bit. The idea that you would be able to quit working and quit trying to earn God's smile is fulfilled in Jesus. The idea that you were made to enjoy rich fellowship with God. If you think of the point of the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a day that God gives you to work on your love relationship with him without other distractions. And a day to just say, we're just going to focus on loving one another today and enjoying one another's presence. 
Jesus is the, is the heart of that, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Everything the Sabbath was to be about, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That's Hebrews 4, right? Jesus is greater than the promised land, and he's greater even than the Sabbath because the Sabbath is fulfilled by him. In other words, even today, I would say this to you, wherever in your life you taste rest, wherever in your life you feel this is rest and balm for my soul, it's just a taste of what you were made for. And, and, and Jesus wants you to taste it in a, in a much, much bigger way. There are places, I think there, there are different themes in the book of Hebrews that I think connect to us in different ways. One of them at the very end of this passage is the idea that we can come boldly before the throne, the idea that we get access that we can come boldly right into the very presence of God means, like, again, it's not just that God made you to be his little worker bee. He made you to have rich, intimate relationship with you. And the book of Hebrews says because of what Jesus did, it's possible now to get in. Everything that you think about when you think about home, every good thing that you think about when you think about home and coming home is fulfilled in Jesus and is caught up in what it means to have a relationship with him because you get home, the ultimate home. You are banished from a garden. You were banished. The human race was banished from the presence of God. And our whole, everything about us is trying to get back, right? It's try, we're trying to get back. And through Jesus, we do. We get access. That's what he says here. But we also get rest. We get rest. Now, I would say that a lot of modern Christians have struggling, really struggle. I mean, it's not just modern Christians. I think a lot of modern people try to find rest in so many other places. But particularly Christians, I think, tend to try to make this world our home. And there's two ways that they try and do it. They're related, but they're worth distinguishing. The first, and and again, this might describe some of y'all's backgrounds. For a lot of people, they've tried to make the Christian subculture their little safe place of rest. In other words, a, a lot of people have grown up in church environments or Christian environments where you basically tried to cut yourself off from any quote-unquote worldly influences and just have only good, safe Christian influences. I always see that nauseating billboard um, around town. Particularly, I used to see it all the time when i drive to Memphis on I-40 um, about this Christian radio station whose tag theme line was safe for the whole family. makes me want to retch. Like that's the point of Christianity is to provide something safe for the whole family. Absolutely not. It's a deep betrayal of what the gospel is about. But it's a very strong theme for a lot of American Christians. I think it's a way of trying to find rest here rather than in Jesus. To try to eliminate anything that might disturb us from our experience here and sort of just sit here and say, this is the place. There was an article back in 2002 in GQ. I'm not prone to read GQ. I don't know. You probably think I do because of the way I dress, but I really don't. Um, <laughs> My wife helps me. No, she's, she does, but she, it's a losing cause. Um, but in GQ, there was, a, there was an article by this guy, Walter Kern, K-I-R-N. Um, he's a very gifted writer. And he wrote an article. He basically decided to spend 30 days completely immersed in Christian subculture. 
He only went to Christian websites for his news. He only did exercise to Christian aerobic videos. He only listened to Christian music, of course. He even found a book that was, What Would Jesus Eat? And so he only ate Christian food. And he did this for 30 days, right? And he said one day, he turned on, he went to crosswalk.com, which is where he was checking his news. And the number one story of everything going on in the world that day, the most important headline on crosswalk.com was pastor fined for rebuking a lewd woman. And that was, that was headline worthy. And, and Walter Kern says, you know, a world in which lewd women get rebuked, a world in which the word lewd is even still used, must be a very comforting, small-town little existence. He says, I'm tempted to jump off the ark. He calls the Christian culture the ark culture, A-R-K, like Noah's ark, sort of floating out in this big, bad world, and we're just sort of holed up in this ark. He said, I'm tempted to sort of turn on the, the real news and see what's happening in the world, but why spoil the illusion? It's a very powerful article written by somebody who's not a Christian, trying out what so many Christians are telling him is the ultimate Christian experience. And here's what he says about this art culture. He says, that's the convincing logic of the ark. If a person is going to waste his life cranking the stereo, clicking the remote, reading paperback pulp, and chasing diet fads, he may as well save his soul while he's at it. Holy living no longer requires self-denial. On the ark, every mass diversion has been cloned from internet news sites to MTV to action movies, and it's possible to live inside the spirit without unplugging oneself from modern life 24 hours a day. I think that's worth pondering. What is, what is your goal? What do you think is the ultimate existence? I pray that it's not to live in the ark and to try to find rest by creating a safe little cocoon existence. If that's your goal, I have, I have to tell you this. Jesus is opposed to you because his very last prayer before he died in John 17, he prays that we would not separate ourselves from the world. He says, I pray that those, meaning us, who would come and believe because of the apostles' witness, that's all of us, if you're a Christian, you're following Jesus, this applies to you. He says, I pray that they would be in the world, but not of it. He says, I pray you don't take them out of the world. So why are so many Christians think that that's the point? It's because they've misunderstood rest, and they think that they can create it here. I think there's another... Um, connection to, and that's the kind of Christian America, good old days nostalgia that still reigns way too much in Christian circles. I don't know if this was popular in your Christian settings growing up, but I've been in those kind of rallies and I've read, you know, those books. It is worth, if, if you are struggling with this, let me just tell you, America was not a Christian nation. 1789 is the year we ratified the Constitution. We also signed a treaty with Tripoli, a Muslim nation, where we stated specifically, we are not a Christian nation. I don't care how many silly books you've read. You should read The Search for Christian America by George Marsden, Mark Knoll, and Nathan Hatch. Um, it will put to death, hopefully, many of these silly ideas that there really were good old days. Who are the good old days for? The blacks? The slaves? When alcoholism was rampant? You can't point to any good old days when we were this supposed Christian nation. Now, that may threaten you, but it should only threaten you if you think that the rest is in the past rather than still ahead. 
But Christians are those who should think of themselves as resident aliens. There's a title of a book William Willimon and Stanley Harawas wrote. It's a, it's, a, it's a great title, and it's a, I don't agree with everything in the book, but it's worth pondering the heart of this because Peter tells Christians living in Turkey back in the first century to live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. That's, that's the model for why Christians are to think of themselves. Not we're just passing through and we don't need to, to sort of be involved in this world, but we don't understand that this place is where we rest and where we find ourselves perfectly at home. Here's the way Harawas and Willimon say it. He goes, the image of resident alien means this, that American Christians need to stop feeling at home. Today's Western church ought to feel like missionaries in the very culture we thought that we have devised. If you think that our culture is Christian and that you can find yourself and feel at home in it, I'm sorry, but you've really misunderstood what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about propping up the status quo. It's not. So the rest is not earthly, and you're not going to find it by looking back. You're not going to find it at the first century church. You're not going to find it at the time of the Reformation. There's lots of times, you know, people have this strange but typical propensity to sort of go back in time until they find a a sort of period where it kind of fits what they like and then they sort of baptize that as the ultimate good old days and we've got to get back there but what the the writer hebrew is saying is the rest that we're looking for is still ahead of us right it still remains but the writer hebrews also says that we must enter this rest now there's a real warning here um, and again, we're going to talk more about warning passages as they, as they go on. But let me just say, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of people who have said, yes, we are following Jesus. And yet persecution is making some of them really rethink this and say, you know, maybe we need to turn back from following Jesus. It would be better if we uh, didn't claim to be Christians, right? Now, I would say, and I think most Bible scholars would agree, that there are some true Christians in this group Hebrews was written to, and then there's some who have said they're following Jesus, but they really aren't. And they never have uh, been changed or transformed. They've never had the supernatural experience of the new birth. But they're kind of hanging out with the Christian group. And this is probably true of most any Christian group and most any Christian church. And so when the writer of Hebrews issues these warning passages, they really are for real. Like, here's the thing. If rest only comes through Jesus, then it's perfectly appropriate for the writer of the Hebrews say, you need to rest in Jesus. And you can't just rest in Jesus for a little while and then sort of move on to something else. Resting in Jesus means that's what I do. In other words, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? There's lots of ways the Bible would describe it, but here's a really big important one. It means to be somebody who rests in Jesus, in particular rests from their works. What does this mean? Well, I, I, I mentioned that, that passage in Isaiah 30, right? In, in repentance and rest is your salvation. A Christian is somebody who has said, I'm not going to keep trying to impress God anymore. And here's the thing. Like, you have to have a supernatural gift of faith given to you if you would let go of trusting in yourself. Seriously. Um, we are... We are we're people who like to cover our bets. And what people love to do is say, I'm going to trust in Jesus, but just in case that's not good enough, I'm going to work really hard and try and impress God too. And what God says is that's actually not resting. 
It's not resting to sort of do both, right? And so here's the question we have to answer. Are you resting in Jesus? And what I mean is not just resting from the bad stuff. Like a lot of people, if you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? They'd say, well, you know, or you ask them, what, what do they think about God and what God will think about them when they die? You often hear this sort of thing. Um, well, you know, I haven't killed anybody and I've really tried my best. So I, I feel like, you know, on balance, you know, I'm probably okay. Now, I think everybody at some level, when they do really terrible things and they know they're terrible, they try to make up for it. But here's the radical thing about Christians. Christians are people who don't just rest from their bad stuff and repent of their bad stuff. They're people who repent of their good stuff. A Christian is somebody who says, I don't even trust in my good stuff. There's a guy, David Dixon. He lived back in the 1600s, and I've always loved his deathbed saying. David Dixon, as he was dying, some of his friends asked him, how is it with your soul? You're soon to meet your maker. How is it with your soul as you lay here? And David Dixon, to me, gave one of the greatest all-time answers to this question. He said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together into a heap, and I fled from both of them to Christ, and in him I have peace. Now, that's, a radical, that's very different than religion. See, there's a lot of like religious, sort of culturally Christian people in our world and in our country who are basically like trying to be really good for Jesus and hoping that they're good enough. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about fleeing from your good deeds and your bad deeds to Christ, resting from your works. I know you feel bad about your bad stuff, but do you feel bad about your good stuff? That's the difference between a real Christian and people who are just kind of hanging out with Jesus, following along. Christians are people who rest from their works, even their good works. And I'll tell you, that's, that's a rather offensive message. It upsets a lot of people that call themselves Christians, but it's the Bible's message. Uh, I like this quote by Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. He said, The man who clings to his own righteousness is like a man who grasps a millstone to prevent himself from drowning. Your righteousness will damn you if you trust in it, as surely as will your sins. Whew. And he goes further and he says, look, I don't know of anything against which God's fury burns more than against self-righteousness. Because this touches God at a very tender point, it insults the glory and honor of his son, Jesus Christ. If you could be good enough for God, then God was wasting his time in sending Jesus. Do you understand that? So when we think that we can, we can look to ourselves to feel good about ourselves, we insult Jesus himself. That's strong. But I'll tell you, like, even though I know that, I find it so difficult to believe that and to live like that, to flee from my own goodness. Who wants to give up their goodness? Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer who wrote, um, And Can It Be? And, um, oh, so, so many, Oh, For a Thousand Tongues, so many you know, great hymns, probably one of the greatest hymn writers that ever lived. Uh, at one point, he thought he was dying, and he was, he was 
somebody who was in the church. He was actually, you know, uh, had been a missionary even at this point to Georgia, and he was back in England at this point. And it seemed that he was dying. And this German Christian friend of his came to him and said to him simply, do you hope to be saved if you die? And Charles Wesley said, why, of course. And this missionary, his name was Peter Bowler, this German guy, said, upon what basis do you hope to be saved? And Charles looked at him and said, well, upon my good endeavors, of course. And the German guy, Peter Bowler, just shook his head and walked away. And Charles wrote later in his journal, what? Would he rob me of my good endeavors? What else do I have? Eventually, wasn't much longer that he read um, Luther's commentary on the Galatians. He heard this truth that the gospel is that God gives you Christ's righteousness when you put your trust in him. And you don't need your own rotten righteousness to try to impress God. It doesn't impress him anyway. Trust boldly in the righteousness of Christ alone and you'll be saved. And Charles was converted. And he wrote... Um, when shall my wandering soul begin? The very next day. I don't know if you know that hymn, but it's worth going and reading as he began to understand the gospel finally. But it's so hard to believe this. So what has God given us to enter this rest? And that's where I think the rest of this passage is so interesting. A lot of you may even know like verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active. Maybe you've memorized that verse, but do you notice that it starts with the word for? The, the, the second half of chapter 4 is connected to the first. In other words, I think that what it, the Hebrews is saying is you need the Word of God to help you enter this rest. Why? Because the Word of God has power to break through your cold heart and point out to you all the ways that you're trusting in yourself rather than in Christ. And you need that. But not only does the Word expose our sins and lay us bare, and we need that so that we'll flee to Jesus alone, it also opens our eyes to see Jesus. So God doesn't just say, you need to rest. You need to rest. Have you ever tried to go to sleep? You know, like Christmas Eve? You know, it doesn't work really well. You try to go to sleep. We've got kids now. It's like, you know, you try to tell them. You just need to close your eyes and go to sleep. And, you know, they come up with a zillion excuses. Well, you can't really try to go to sleep. It's really hard. You can't really try, try, try to rest. You need help. And God comes in and he says, look, I have one thing that will help you rest. Use my word. It's like a scalpel. And everywhere that you're trying to prop up your own righteousness, the word of God comes in and says, nope, doesn't work. And you may hate that. It may hurt. But it's ultimately so loving of God to expose you and to say, you're worse than you think, but take heart. Jesus is better than you think. You don't need to help him out by trying to hold up your own righteousness to add to his. You don't. You don't need it. Look at the, look at the one that we have. So the word helps us, but so does our great high priest, Jesus. So we say the word helps us realize that there's nowhere else to rest. We can't rest in ourselves because even if you think you're pretty good, all you have to do is start reading the word of God and it shows you that you're worse than you think you are. And then the word also shows us Jesus, our great high priest, right? God doesn't just expose our sin. He reveals Jesus to us in his word. And it's so vital for us to know that Jesus is a merciful one who has lived and died in the place of sinners to give us his righteousness. Because only when you know that can you rest. You can't give up trusting in yourself unless you're convinced that you don't need it. 
And the only way you'll be convinced you don't need it is if Jesus gives you his righteousness and that truth of that breaks into your heart and your soul, right? You won't be able to let go of your own righteousness, no matter how rotten it is, unless you see that something more beautiful has been given to you freely. And, and, and everything you try to add to that robe of righteousness just spoils it and makes it ugly. So we have a, a great high priest. And then finally, we have access to the throne of grace in prayer. We can come boldly. I, you know, Sometimes I think it's even weird that we bow our heads when we pray. Because the book of Hebrews says that the posture of prayer is boldness. And I think sometimes even that body posture like this sort of gives us the idea that we're just, you know, you've heard like the Monty Python, Oh, Lord, you're so huge, and we're so very tiny. And like that sense, no, no. Hebrews says, come boldly. The idea that you can look him in the face Look him in the face and see that he smiles at you in Jesus. Do you understand that? Do you, is that what you think of when you think of praying to God? That's, that's what the Bible says. You can come boldly. Why can you come boldly? Not because, not because you're a pretty good person, but because Jesus was perfect. And you come to God through him by faith. But this is so difficult I love this quote from Luther, and I'll, I'll close with this. It's under point number two, point, you know, Roman numeral two, number one. There's some other great quotes I'll commend to your reading later, but I want to close with this one. Martin Luther, um, Martin Luther was, did some crazy stuff, absolutely. Um, he gets blamed for a lot of stuff he probably shouldn't be blamed for, but he still was kind of crazy. He said very strong things. Some of them were kind of crazy. Some of them were really amazing. Because what you get with Luther, you get a very kind of loud, boisterous German guy who probably drank too much and definitely, you know, said things like, I fart to chase the devil away. And, you know, and, 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 and he was such a revolutionary character that he had like three or four people like constantly sitting around writing down everything he did. Like they'd sit around, they'd drink, and then they'd write down everything Luther said. So, you know, what do you, what do you expect, right? But um, this, is, this is from one of his letters. And I love his honesty. I mean, Luther is the guy who, you know, for, in so many ways, God used him to sort of break open to the world the goodness of grace. In a time when it had almost been snuffed out in the church, God used Martin Luther to sort of, sort of raise the clarion call and say, no, relationship with God is about grace. And listen to what he writes in a letter years and years after God had helped him come to that discovery. He said, it's exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. For even though now we are in faith, and what he means is even though now we understand that Christianity is about trusting by faith rather than our works of love, he says, even though we are now in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, After all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much. Surely God will take this into account. We want to even haggle with God to make him regard our life. But it cannot be done. With man, you may boast, I have done the best I could toward everyone, and if anyone is lacking, I will still try to make recompense. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace.
In other words, you need to run to God through Jesus alone, not, tr- not bringing any of your own stuff to him. But he says, but let anybody, and this is the part I love, but let anybody try this to, 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 to just boldly trust by faith alone. And he will see and experience how exceedingly hard and bitter a thing it is for a man who, or a woman who all their life have been mired in works righteousness to pull themselves out of it and with all their hearts rise up through faith in the one mediator, meaning Jesus. I myself, he says, have been preaching and cultivating this knowledge of grace and faith through reading and writing for almost 20 years. And still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. I think that's the fatal, the fatal flaw in so much of our thinking. Even Christians, we still keep thinking this, that God will give me his grace in exchange for my best efforts. But he says, still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. So I I just am so encouraged by that. Like Luther, 20 years of cultivating and preaching and teaching this, says it's still difficult to believe this. In some ways, the good news is it's almost too good to be true. It's why we need each other, like I talked about last week. It's why we need the Word of God, like Hebrews is saying here. We need to be in the Word of God because we need to see Jesus. We need to have our sin exposed because it's so easy. Your heart is always wanting to run back and say, hey, I'm not really that bad. Come on. I'm really better than this, and I'm, at least I'm better than her, you know? And you need this dose of reality from God's Word because resting is so much more difficult than you think. I heard it said, I think it was Dan Allender one time that said, the only thing you need is nothing. And that's the only thing you don't have. The only thing you need is nothing. But that's the most difficult, that's the most difficult thing to give. Because we just, we just want to cover our bets. But faith is a living, daring, bold hope in Jesus. And Jesus is beautiful. God looked at Jesus on the cross, and he was satisfied. When Jesus said, as he gave up his soul, it is finished, it meant that there was nothing left to be done for you to come boldly before the throne of God. Let's pray together.